Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Inspirato, provider of the world's most exclusive vacation homes. I just joined Inspirato and I can tell you they go way beyond a typical vacation rental. It's all the best parts of a vacation house. The space, the privacy, the kitchen and dining room, combined with the service you'd expect from a five-star hotel. That means premium linens and furnishings, plus daily housekeeping, an on-site concierge, and much more. It really is the best of both worlds. From Turks and Caicos to Tuscany, you'll find consistent luxury. Right now, our listeners can receive a thousand bucks towards their first trip to one of their exclusive vacation homes when they become an Inspirato member. You can call 310-773-9474 and mention Meb Faber or visit inspirato.com forward slash Meb sent me to learn more. That's inspirato.com forward slash Meb sent me. Welcome podcast listeners. Today's show is going to be a fantastic one. Our guest comes to us from one of the most respected shops on the street, GMO, where he's a member of the asset allocation team. Prior to joining GMO, he is co-head of global strategy at SockGen, also a prolific writer. He's written a handful of leather-bound books, a slew of papers. We're so happy to have him today. Welcome, James Montier. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you for having me. So, James, I, in prep for this chat, I, I went and reread almost every paper I could find of yours going back <laughs> you uh, my sympathies for a start. almost 20 years and scanned your books because one of them is 700 pages, but... But I'd read them before, but but I noticed there was a very kind of sharp break in around 2016 when you went from your photo was a kind of a very drab, wearing a dark shirt, to all of a sudden wearing Hawaiian shirts. Was that because your market outlook in 2016 became so much rosier, where you said, you know what, I think the markets, this is t- the time to be fully invested. Was that was that kind of why you changed the photo? or? <laughs> oh, yeah. if, if only that were the case. Uh, it would have been a lovely one. But no, yeah, I've always been a fan of, of dressing badly throughout my career. And I guess I joined GMO in, in 2009. And, and when I joined, one of the things that the company was slightly nervous of was the fact that I was usually very badly dressed. And they decided that I should start to, to dress a little better. If I was going to be uh, have quite such outlandish views on, on the world, they'd prefer it if I looked stayed. And I think over the, the intervening time, they have got used to me and I've got used to them. And I eventually decided I could return to showing my true colors and, and hence the return to, um, to truly outrageous shirts. And indeed today, I'm, I'm wearing yet another really quite hideous floral design just to prove my ever-expanding wardrobe of tasteless shirts it's still there. So no, it was sadly unrelated to any views on the market, much more to do with kind of GMO and I growing together. Well, you'd fit right in in our Los Angeles office. Style advisory is equally as casual. So let's dive right in. You have had a market view over the past few years where you've kind of taken a look around. You said part of the problem from our perspective, when you look at the world's assets, 
is nothing's cheap. So let's get the depressing stuff out of the way early. What, what what's kind of your your market view? Is it the same as it was over the past few years? What, how do you how do you kind of view markets today? Yeah, very similarly. I think that things do change, obviously, but by and large, we're we're still trapped in this world where, frankly, you're you're reduced to playing a game of picking the tallest dwarf, uh, not a politically correct game, but the one I think we're forced to play at the moment, where you're you're essentially looking at pretty much almost every asset being expensive compared to to kind of what we would think of as normal. And that makes asset allocation a a real challenge because through most of history, what we've seen is uh, periods when, let's say, if if risk assets, equities and the like were expensive, you could usually sit quite nicely in in cash and safe haven assets like bonds and just sit on sidelines and wait. But what we've seen in, in the last few years is this kind of much broader degree of, of overvaluation that, that really is, I think, a, a serious challenge for trying to put together an investment portfolio that's going to generate kind of half decent returns on a forward-looking basis. And, and so let's talk specifically with everyone's favorite investment, U.S. stocks. And you guys do so much work on valuation, you know, and, and we've certainly talked a lot about it here on the podcast before. And and I think it's something that people really struggle with. And maybe talk a little bit just kind of briefly on on what you think your framework for thinking about valuation is and any particular favorite ways to think about it as a a process as well. Sure. So that's an excellent question. Because the way we tend to look at it is to start from accounting identities. And the nice thing about accounting identities is they have to be true. So if you're thinking about an equity or, or an equity market, you can essentially say, look, there are four ways you get paid for, for owning an equity. You could get a change in valuation, a change in profitability. You'll get some growth and some yield. Now, ex post, I can always decompose your returns into those component elements. And when you do that, what you see is in the, the very long term that it is all the growth and yield that, that give you your equity return. In the shorter term, it is always the PE and margin, so the, the kind of cyclically adjusted bit of the valuation, if you like, that generates all the volatility. So to take that from an accounting framework into a, a kind of forecasting framework, you obviously have to say something about where you think those variables are going to go. What we do is say over the course of the next seven years, things should return to normal. And, and we can talk a little more about what normal is if, if you like. But for us, you can think of it, as, as, at least in very rough terms, as kind of returning to a long period average. It's not quite the way we think, but it's a good approximation. So what you do is you say, okay, PEs today are, are pretty high. They're coming back to normal. Margins, profitability, pretty high. That should come back to, to normal. You'll get your yield and your growth. When you do that, what you get is, is a pretty miserable outlook for U.S. equities. Now, you can get very similar results from a pretty wide measure of valuation measures. So you don't have to use that kind of decomposition-based framework. You can look at something like a Schiller PE. The Schiller PE, as you well know, uh, we are now the second most expensive we've ever seen. We have now surpassed 1929. We are now second only to, to 1999. Strangely enough, you don't hear too many bulls going out and saying, go and buy U.S. equities because it's just like 1999. Uh, they've kind of worked out it wouldn't be the world's best sales pitch. But that is uh, the reality of, of where we are from valuation perspectives. You could look at things like the pricing of a median stock. If you don't want to look at the, the market cap average, you could just look at the, the average stock, you get a very similar picture if you're looking at something like the average stock's price to sales multiple, it has never been higher. And the point of the, these various different valuation measures is really to help you triangulate. 
Uh, if it was just one particular indicator that was kind of giving you a, a, a signal, you'd either want to have a lot of faith in that particular signal or you'd be saying, okay, well, look, it's just one. But when you look at a, a wide range of valuation-based metrics and they are all pretty much telling you the same thing, then you, you could have a more certainty in your view. From our perspective, pretty much every measure we look at shows U.S. equities to be uh, what I've often described as obscenely expensive. So on the baseline of, of our forecasts going back to, to normal, you end up with a forecast that's something like minus 3 to minus 4% per annum for the next seven years after inflation. Uh, so those are real terms, which is a pretty damn depressing kind of outlook to have. So you mentioned, it's funny, you say pretty much every valuation metric, but we've written on Twitter about this and been on the podcast and say, can someone please find me any valuation metric that, that says stocks are cheap? And I've, I've yet to find one, but you've talked a lot a bit about this in your writing. You know, your early part of your career was mentioning so much research on behavioral investing. And to your credit, one of the things you often talked about is says, look, so many analysts and portfolio managers and people in life in general spend so much time just confirming their views. And so let's maybe take the flip side. Is there a good argument for, you know, we're looking around and we see everything's expensive. Is there an argument where either that's okay or this works out in a way or Elon Musk finds a new element on the moon that gives us free energy? I mean, what's a scenario if, if someone was to break down your argument you know, is there, is there any valid points that you think, okay, maybe, maybe this is a possibility that this may not be so bad? I think that we spend a lot of time trying to engage in exactly that activity. So one of my primary jobs here is, is kind of to play devil's advocate and uh, pull on all the strings. And I've spent a huge amount of time over the last two years trying to find a decent explanation as to why this time is different, if you will, those, those terrible words. But in general, I, I haven't been able to construct one. Right? Every argument I, I've come across, I just find to have some sort of logical flaw in it. So probably the most common one is low interest rates. Yeah, low interest rates justify high equity valuations. The problem with that is if you think about it from a, a, just a simple dividend discount model perspective, if you think about it, you, you, your top line of dividend discount going out into the future is the cash flows you expect to receive. The bottom line is the discount rate that you're using. Now, there's a reasonable argument, I think, to be made that the discount rate that you use can actually be independent of the interest rate, but let's assume it isn't. Let's assume it is a function of the interest rate. Therefore, the interest rate drops are discounting those cash flows by a lower discount rate. Therefore, you should end up with a higher valuation. The problem I have with that argument is I don't think the discount rate and the growth rate are, are terribly independent. So those cash flows uh, going out across the future are going to be lower because growth is lower. And the reason the, the discount rate is lower is also because growth is lower, i.e. low rates because growth is weak. What you actually end up with is, is an unchanged valuation, right? You end up with lower returns going forwards for sure, but you don't change the valuation. And so I have a hard time with pretty much all the explanations I've come across for why high PEs might be sustainable. You know, there's Jeremy Siegel and, and his attempts to, to kind of, uh, as ever, uh, meet a, a bull market that he loves. And the whole idea, well, what we'll do is replace the kind of Schiller PE 10-year moving average with uh, whole economy profits instead. The problem with that is, is manifold, but not least of which is you don't own the whole economy. You own the, re the, the listed sector. That's what you're actually interested in. The big argument 
that kind of people use to attack the Schiller PE as well includes 2009, and 2009 was a dreadful year reflecting 2008. And yes, that is true, but it actually doesn't make that much difference. If you look at something like a, a Hussman PE, which instead of using a 10-year moving average of, of reported earnings, says let's use the, the past peak cycle earnings, you get exactly the same picture as you do with the Schiller PE. So it has nothing to do with 2009 being included. So all of these kinds of arguments get thrown up all the time about why a particular metric is wrong or, or there is some explanation. But so far, I have been completely unable to find one that actually kind of holds water, that, that you can test empirically and say, yes, that is the case. Like with interest rates, if you look at real interest rates through history, and you plot them against, let's say, Schiller PEs, you'll find there's no relationship. So as compelling as it seems that, that low interest rates could justify uh, high PEs, there isn't a shred of evidence that they ever have done. And therefore, you're, you're acting on faith. It's funny because so many famous investors often recite this message where they say equities are allowed to be more expensive because interest rates are so low. And you gave a great example in one of your papers or books where you said, well, that's funny. Let's take a look around the world. That hasn't been the case in Japan for the past two decades. And Japan's not some backwater economy in a number two, I think now number three economy in the world where they had negative returns for over two decades. So, But it's funny that it gets repeated so much. And we, same thing, often used to tell people on Twitter or what else, I say, if you think interest rates matter in equity valuations as a, as a model, Send us one that works, and I've yet to see one. So, listeners, if you find if you find a good one, quantitative, send it to me, and I'll uh, I'll eat my words. You know, it's a funny situation though because you have this scenario in the U.S. and almost all the conversations I have with individuals. We just went to a CIO summit last week, and almost everyone agreed with this, where they said, "You know what? We know that stocks are expensive." And you had a piece where. You talked about this and you say fund managers, for the most part, all agree that you are U.S. market is expensive, but still they choose to own equities. A cynical career risk driven position. If ever there was one, I've been amazed by the number of meetings I've had recently where investors have said simply they have to own U.S. equities. Maybe talk about a little bit about that concept and why that's potentially pretty <laughs> dangerous setup and position to be in. Sure. So it, you're right that this is what I've described as this kind of cynical bubble where people know they shouldn't be investing. And as you say, as you, you found at the CIO conference, that everybody's like, yes, we agree, U.S. equities are expensive. And I had a, a, a bizarre meeting earlier this year on the West Coast of the States uh, with a, a well-known endowment. And we spent you know, 20 minutes running through all the valuations and, the, and they were nodding away. And I was like, oh, this meeting is going really quite well. And then we got to the end and we were talking about, well, what are you going to do? So how are you positioned? And they're like, well, our CIO is screaming at us because we've got 6% cash and we were meant to have three. So we're going to go and buy S&P 500 futures. Uh, you know, this was not some individual investor who had no idea. This was a, a very sophisticated endowment. And here they were behaving in, in exactly the way that, that we talked about here is cynical. And to me, this is, this is a, a very dangerous game because it, it implies that if you agree that the market is expensive, but you are still owning equities, you are saying they are going up for some other reason. And that makes me nervous because it, it's in essence, you're playing a greater full game. You know, you, you've abandoned the principles of investment. You should no longer call yourself an investor. You, you're welcome to call yourself a speculator. I'm looking forward to the chief speculative officers uh, offsite. That'll be an, an intriguing one to be a fly on the wall at. But you can imagine that this is a, an environment which is very fragile. 
Because if there isn't any valuation support and everybody agrees there isn't any valuation support, then you are effectively saying the world is priced for perfection. And you're playing a, a greater full game where you're thinking, okay, I'm going to hold on to my equities for now because I think I can sell them even higher up. And we know that greater full games are incredibly hard to win. Keynes wrote about it way back in the 1930s. He talked about the investment industry as a newspaper beauty contest in which the uh, objective was not to pick the prettiest face, but rather to pick the face that the average person thought the average person would find prettiest. Uh, you can play that game mathematically. And you say, OK, pick a number between 0 and 100. The winner of the game will be the person who picks the number closest to two-thirds of the average number picked. Now, when you play that game, you, you get these sort of spikes and these levels. Of- wait, 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 James, let, let me interrupt you. Listeners, I want you to think of a number in your head, and you can write it down on a piece of paper. If you're at the gym, just put it in your head. Think of a number that you think would be the best guess for this, and you can see kind of where it plays out, by the way. All right, continue continue explaining the, the, the results. So cool. You, you play this game, and, and I played it with over a 1,000 professional investors, and it's about the third or fourth largest game ever played, and the only one purely amongst professionals. But you get these, these spikes, and these spikes kind of represent levels of thinking. So you, you, know, you get a spike at 50. These are what I've called the kind of Homer and Simpsons of the investment world. Uh, they've gone you know, 0, 100, 50. So they, they've not shown an enormous amount of intellectual prowess in, in playing this game. Then there's the kind of spike at 33, uh, who think everybody else in the world is, is Homer. Uh, then there's a spike at 22, who think they're pretty, pretty smart. Uh, and then there's a, usually a spike down at zero. Um, and zero, you find all the economists, the mathematicians, and the game theorists of the world. Because only these guys are trained to, to think about these problems and solve them. And it turns out the only stable Nash equilibrium outcome is zero. So only when everybody picks zero is two-thirds of zero is still zero. Hence, it's the only stable outcome. But of course, it's also completely wrong because you are not playing a bunch of economists and, and game theorists and mathematicians. Generally, what you find is the average number picked in these games turns out to be around about 25, 26, which gives you a, a kind of two-thirds average about 17. So in the particular game I played, what we found was only three people out of 1,000 managed to pick number 17. And uh, the point of that game was just to show how hard it is to be exactly one step ahead of everybody else. And yet that's exactly what you're doing. You're saying, you know what? Yes, these equities are expensive, but I know better than everybody else. I'm going to carry on holding them. I'll sell out before the top. That's a, a very hubristic statement to make. It's akin to saying, yeah, I can pick the exact winning number in, in Keynes' beauty contest. It's a, a very hubristic statement and one that is not uh, supported by masses of evidence through history. People generally end up selling you know, nearer the, the bottom than the top, strangely enough. So I, I think this is a very fragile market where you have this this cynical career risk dominated behavior where everyone's saying, I'm going to own equities either because I think they're going up more or because, uh, and this is, I think, a, a big influence on a lot of the professional investors, I don't want to look wrong in the short term. It's not that we don't think they're overvalued. We do. It's just that all of my peers are holding this stuff. And if I'm the only one who isn't and they do well again, I'm going to look really stupid and I get fired. And that's why we often talk about career risk being such a dominant force in in market behavior, because it it is 
one of those things that forces people to do strange things like owning overvalued equities, which they know they're doing. Uh, but they're doing it because the fear of missing out is is just so great. You know, it's funny. It, it kind of goes back to that old Charlie Munger line where he says, you know, I've heard Warren Buffett mention this many times where it's not fear and greed necessarily to drive the markets. It's envy and, and envy being that part where you have a market that's appreciation, appreciating and valuation. Um, and particularly when it gets into the bubble phases, you know, it the envy, if you're probably a logical investor, rational maybe sitting it out and all your neighbors getting rich is really, really hard thing to sit by why, why everyone else is having fun. You know, you talk a little bit about risk and volatility and how they equate. And you have a, a chart that you've popularized that I love that that I think puts it into a better framework for a lot of investors. You know, so you all publish your forecast and you say, look, you know, US stocks returns probably gonna be negative. But there's a chart that looks at valuation and or forecast for valuation, but same thing. And then future drawdowns based on that valuation. And and maybe you could talk a little bit about that and, and what that kind of means. Because I think when people put it in terms of potential loss rather than, hey, yearly, the returns may not be so good, but the, the actual magnitude is, it probably means something a little more tangible for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it kind of triggers the fear response much more, right? The, the idea that you know, you're going to get lower returns than you've had historically is it's just not that terrifying. But when you look at the chart of drawdowns on the same basis and you, you plot the PEs on the market against the, the subsequent kind of three-year drawdown, you get exactly the same relationship, kind of monotonic pattern, where the higher the market is, the worse the drawdown actually gets. And that's not a huge surprise, right? But it, it really does reinforce in people's minds that, hey, what I'm doing here is, is playing a very dangerous game. When markets are priced for perfection, if they fall short against that expectation, the downside is really high. Whereas if markets are priced for, for kind of really bad outcomes, then it doesn't take an awful lot to, to exceed the outcome. And even if they disappoint, if people are really pessimistic, it's hard to disappoint by that much. And you can, you can see it in action in, in kind of 2008. So in late 2008, I actually turned bullish, which is a, a rare state of existence for me. And I, I was really excited because I was running deep value screens. They were throwing up really good names. Even things like Microsoft were appearing on a deep value screen. I never thought I'd get the opportunity to say, go and buy Microsoft. But it was a world in which people were picking up the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times every day and seeing stories about how the world could end tomorrow. And... The reality was, from my perspective, look, if you looked at, at the kind of levels of valuation we were getting towards in some places, this was the level where it was really hard to imagine a permanent impairment of capital on an ongoing basis. Therefore, you should be wanting to deploy capital. It didn't mean markets couldn't go down more. Of course they could. But as long as you had a, a sufficient time horizon, let's say five years, then you were likely to be buying at, at pretty attractive levels of, of valuation. The flip side of that is, is where we are today, where markets are very expensive in general, and in particular in the US. Therefore, the risk you are running is, is the drawdown is, is much more severe. Now, it could be that this time is different, that actually we see a, a prolonged period of the market going sideways. You're still going to get those low returns. You just don't get the crash. We haven't historically ever witnessed one of those situations, but it is you can never say never. But I think the, the power of the drawdown chart is it just really reminds people of, hey, when things get expensive, I'm I, I run the risk of losing a lot of capital in a short period of time. And therefore, 
yeah, the more expensive the market, the greater the drawdown. That's something I should really be worried about because I'm, I'm going to, we know that people, when they suffer losses, tend to really hate them and therefore they sell. And so they, it, it's not just that they suffer the drawdown, it's often that that triggers uh, psychologically this kind of revulsion. People then sell at, of course, just the point in time when, when things are actually beginning to look a little bit better. So the, the, the ignorance of that drawdown is not only the, the risk they're running, but the uh, risk of them then changing their behavior after that drawdown has actually occurred. And this, uh, we'll post this to the show notes, but there's a great graphic where the guys at Star Capital in Germany extrapolated this, not just from the US, but to a bunch of other foreign markets. And you find the exact same behavior where the more you pay for something, the higher the chance you have in the next three, five years of a big fat loss. Um, particularly, it gets even worse in some of these other countries because they're smaller and they get to even higher bubble sort of valuations historically. I want to tell you a little more about Inspirato. Listen, you only get a few days off each year to spend with the people who are special to you. Aren't these days too important to be left to chance? That's where Inspirato comes in, with luxury vacation homes across the U.S., Caribbean, Europe, and beyond. These spacious homes are staffed like five-star hotels, so you get all the amenities, an on-site concierge, and daily housekeeping, and they even do the dishes for you. That's why I became an Inspirato member. You can travel all over the world and get the same luxurious experience whether you're in Nantucket, Sonoma, Spain, or anywhere else. Y'all know I'm a skier, so I can't wait to check out their ski homes in Colorado and Montana. Members also get access to their Jaunt program, which offers incredible savings on luxury vacation homes and thousands of four- and five-star hotels around the globe, which is great for a business traveler like me. Let Inspirato take care of the details so you can focus on making the most of your vacation. Right now, our listeners can get a 1000 bucks toward their first trip to one of their exclusive vacation homes when they become an Inspirato member. Call 310-773-9474 and mention MebFavor or visit inspirato.com forward slash MebSentMe to learn more. That's inspirato.com forward slash MebSentMe. And now back to the show. So let's say you got people listening to this and said, all right, Meb and James, you've already ruined my morning workout. Um, I can't go to sleep tonight. What, what's the, you, you've given me the diagnosis. What's, what's kind of the prescription? So if you're a longer term investor, you know, I think the challenge for so many people is they want to think in binary terms. So either I got to be all in or all out. What's the kind of prescription for what, what people should be doing if they recognize kind of some of the characteristics of what we've been talking about, particularly with U.S. stocks uh, so far? So I think there are kind of four, four options that people could pursue. Not all of them have equal merit, but I, I think there are four options. And uh, I'll walk you through them and, and then we can talk about the, the kind of the favored one out of the four, if you like. The first one is concentration. You could just say, you know what, I'm going to own the thing that I am most optimistic about, which in our case is emerging market value stocks. Now, we don't think they're particularly cheap, but they're a lot, lot better than pretty much anything else on, on the planet. So you're still picking the tallest dwarf. You're still saying, hey, look, this thing's expensive in absolute terms, but it's a lot better than everything else. So that makes me slightly nervous on, on that particular approach. But you, you, could, you could go down that path, right? So concentration is, is one way of doing it. And my boss, Jeremy Grantham, has, has talked a lot about the, the idea of the Stalin portfolio. And that's kind of an extreme concentration portfolio. So the idea there is Joseph Stalin comes up to you and says, hey, look, I want you to run my pension fund. What I want is 5% after inflation over the next decade in per annum terms. Off you go. If you succeed, you get a pension of your own and you get a nice little dacha on the, the Black Sea. If you fail, you get a bullet in the brain. 
So it really focuses your mind on kind of, okay, how am I going to deliver that return objective? If you were going to be Rip Van Winkle and sleep for the next decade, you would have to own emerging market value stocks because that's the only thing that gets you close to achieving that kind of return target. I don't think it's a portfolio that anybody would run for lots of different reasons, one of which is the chances are they're not going to rip Van Winkle, right? They're not going to just fall asleep for the next decade. They're going to be looking at their portfolio and, and updating their views as they go. And that's one of the problems with concentration is you're kind of giving up the right to rebalance terribly painlessly because you're saying, okay, I've, I've bought these emerging market value stocks. Let's assume they get cheaper, uh, i.e. You're, you're wrong in the short term. Uh, you haven't got any more capital to deploy. You're, you're kind of just trapped there. So there are certainly limits to concentration, but it is one of the options. The second option is to say, well, use leverage. This is kind of the, the, the risk parity solution, if you will. Hey, look, returns are low. To get better returns, what you need is to, is to leverage up your portfolio. Now, the problem I have with, with leverage is that it is largely incompatible with a valuation-based approach. Right? Uh, a valuation-based approach is, is kind of what Howard Marks has referred to as an I-don't-know way of investing, by which he, he means that value investors are essentially agnostic about the path an asset takes. So cheap assets can always get cheaper. Expensive assets can always get more expensive, at least in the short term. If you are using leverage, you are saying, hey, I know something about the path that this asset will take back to fair value. That is a uh, it, it's a difficult statement to make for a lot of value investors. It's not one that I feel terribly comfortable with. And you can look at someone like Julian Robertson, right? the, 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 uh, the, the value investing genius who ran uh, Tiger back in the, uh, the late 1990s. And he shut his fund down in 1999 because he was using leverage and a valuation-based approach. He was long value, short growth. And of course, he was getting essentially killed on both sides of that trade. Uh, and eventually, he just couldn't be bothered to deal with clients anymore and said, you know what, I'm just going to shut it down uh, to the public. He continued to run it privately, uh, did very well out of it. Uh, but he, the margin calls were, were pretty unpleasant, as you can imagine. So using leverage, you need deep pockets and you need a degree of confidence about the path that assets going to take, which I think are two kind of big hurdles to overcome. The third possible path you could say is, well, seek alternatives, right? So far, I've talked about listed equities, listed bonds, currencies. What about the, the, all the other assets, private debt, private equity, all these so-called alternatives? The problem I have with alternatives is most of them are not genuinely alternative, by which I mean they are not magic beans. They're not unicorns. They're, they're not somehow uncorrelated sources of return. Best example is, is probably private equity. If you think about private equity. What does private equity do? Well, it takes public companies and turns them private and then uses leverage. So in essence, private equity returns in aggregate should be public equity returns plus leverage minus costs. So you can clearly see that, that public, uh, private equity sorry, is very much a, going to be a function of public equity. They're going to be highly related. You know, if you're looking for companies to take private, where are you taking them private from? Well, you're taking them from the public market. We've established that public markets are expensive. Therefore, these deals are being done at expensive valuations, and therefore, your returns are likely to be lower. So I think as long as you think of alternatives as being different ways of owning standard risk, then you, can, you get an idea about what an alternative truly is. And just like every other asset or strategy, there will be times when it is attractively priced and times when it isn't attractively priced.
So a good example that we hold in, in some of our portfolios, uh, merger arbitrage. Merger arbitrage is a strategy that we think of as just like equity. Uh, it, it's underwriting the same basic growth risk as, as equity investment, but it has a very different duration profile. You know, standard equities have duration, depending on how you measure it, is somewhere between 25 and 50 years. The duration for a merger arbor deal is somewhere between uh, 6 to, to 18 months. Um, so it's, it's got a very different payoff profile. But it's something you only want to engage in when merger arbitrage or, or the deals you can find are attractive, clearly. So it, it's as valuation dependent as anything else you do in investing. Which leaves you with, with the final path. And, and this is my preferred path. I'm a big fan of, of Winnie the Pooh. And um, I actually live, I live in, in the UK and uh, uh, I live very close to where Winnie the Pooh was set. In fact, I even got married on, on Ashdown Forest where Winnie the Pooh was set. And was reading Winnie the Pooh to my kids not so long ago. And one of the, the, the pieces of advice in there was never underestimate the value of doing nothing. And I think that that's often neglected in our industry. There is an obsession with being seen to do something, action bias. Soccer goalkeepers suffer action bias. If you think about a soccer goalkeeper and a penalty shootout, the ball's placed, the, the soccer goalkeeper's standing there, he's in the middle of the goal. Usually what happens is they dive heroically left or right, and they miss the, the save, right? The, the ball either goes straight down the middle or to the opposite corner. Um, the reality is, statistically, they would be much better off if they stayed in the center of their goal. But... Of course, if they do that and then the penalty gets put in the corner, they, they look like an idiot. It's like, well, why were we just standing there? So they would rather be seen to do something. So they dive heroically left or right. That's action bias. And I think it's very prevalent in, in our industry. Why are, you, why are you sitting on cash? Why am I paying you to, to sit on cash? Which, of course, you're not. Right? You're, you're, you're paying us not to do something stupid. And going owning risk assets at these levels of valuation is the kind of definition of, of doing something stupid. But patience is, whilst it is definitely a virtue, it is a problem because in the short term, it is indistinguishable whether you are just early or wrong. And therefore, people's tolerance for you tends to, to be quite diminished. And Keynes knew this a long time ago. He said those who pursue a kind of long-term valuation-based approach uh, tend to, to receive very little mercy because if they're acting in a contrarian fashion, which is inherently what a, a value-based investor is doing, they're likely to, to look different. And looking different is, is career risk. And so it is unfortunate in the short term because you're sitting there looking, let's say, holding cash, looking conservative, being patient, waiting for that opportunity set to change. If it doesn't change, uh, you, you are wrong. And if it does change, well, nobody's going to thank you anyway because they've probably had a lot of investments that were once worth a lot more than they are right now, and therefore you, you're not going to be uh, terribly popular. So no matter what you do, you, you're kind of doomed. And that, that I think, is one of the, the challenges to being patient. But to me, it is the most sensible thing to do when there is nothing to do, which is, I think, a good description of the current uh, asset environment in general, don't do very much. Right? Just sit there, be patient, wait until a better opportunity set presents yourself. Now, the risk you're running, of course, is it never does. The more years that go by with me in markets, the more I think that, you know, there's certainly absolutely nothing wrong with cash and people erring on the side of having more cash, you know, are, are, are never going to really regret it as much as the people that do the opposite. And you, you had a couple of good comments in some papers that tie back to what you're talking about. You know, you said that 
if you look back in the history of investment, it seemed like people really started from the standpoint of blank slate, why should I own this investment? But really, it's transitioned over the years to being more kind of a, why shouldn't I own this investment? And on aggregate, most of the academic literature shows that all these big, huge, massive institutions that invest real big money, they end up, they end up all owning the global market portfolio anyway. But so here's the challenge when we're thinking about expectations. Almost every study shows that investors expect 10% plus returns. The dang millennials are up around 12 because they've never seen a bear market. And so everyone's focused on performance. And you had a good quote in uh, your little book of behavioral investing where you were talking about baseball, but you then segued to, to, to say, we obsess with outcomes over which we have no direct control. However, we can and do control the process by which we invest. As investors, this is what we should focus upon. The management of, re- of return is impossible. The management of risk is illusory. But process is the one thing which we can exert an influence over. Maybe comment a little bit about kind of developing a good process. You know, you mentioned this, this poor opportunity set today. And, you know, kind of how it's hard, but but you also talk about in I Want to Break Free, you said clients really should be looking for managers that is based upon not past performance, but rather process, and then kind of let them have at it. Maybe, maybe any comments or thoughts you have there, uh, and we can go. Sure, ahead. absolutely. So so process is key, right? And, then, and you see this with athletes, and, and uh, as you say, I talked about baseball in, in one of the notes there, but you, you talk to professional athletes, and they're not thinking about winning, as, as counterintuitive as that seems, given that that is what they are obsessing about at one level, it is not what they focus on, because they can't control it. The only thing they control is, is if it's a, a sprint, the way they run their race. And so process is key. It is the one thing that everybody can control. And having a good process, I think, is, is no guarantee of good returns. It just puts you in the right, yeah, in the best place to get kind of those good returns. doesn't guarantee them, but at least if you keep doing the right thing and do it repeatedly, eventually it should lead to better outcomes. From an investment point of view, process is, is really kind of behavioral self-defense. It is saying, okay, look, I'm human, therefore I know I'm going to make behavioral mistakes. And there are a huge range of them that, that psychologists have spent decades and decades documenting how we all think oddly about certain things. The key is to think, is to say, okay, let me look at the way I invest and identify, you know, a couple of the, the big mistakes I keep repeating um, and then think about how I might begin to uh, protect myself against those. So earlier we talked about confirmatory bias and, and the habit of looking for information that agrees with us. It's incredibly easy to do. I think these days, it is perhaps the easiest it has ever been to do, because with the, uh, everybody reading online media all the time, it is very easy to only look for the opinions that happen to agree with you. If you tend to stumble across somebody who disagrees with you, you dismiss them as a gibbering idiot anyway. And you're like, ah, the fool, what they know, and then you retreat back to, to reading the stuff that you agree with. Uh, that is made a lot easier today by the way that, that we can handle media in, in an online setting. So I think, you know, Confirmatory bias is, is certainly a big risk. So getting into the habit of saying, yeah, where could I be wrong? What would it take me to be wrong? How can I, I set this problem up so that I, I'm exploring the opposite point of view in a, an objective fashion? And it crops up throughout all of human behavior. These, these biases are pretty constant. There's a great book by um, Brian Wansick called uh, Mindless Eating, which, which I love. And it, it, it's all about how these biases 
show up in the context of food. And uh, he had one where there was a refillable soup bowl. So people are eating soup at a, a restaurant table. What they don't know is the bowl is actually refilling from underneath the table. So they, they just, they're not making any dent in it. And they massively overeat because they're just completely unaware of the fact that they're just consuming more and more soup. They're like, oh, my, my bowl's still full. I must eat more. Totally oblivious. There was an experiment done where they put uh, red food dye into white wine. And people were like, oh, yes, I can smell tannins and oak and, and heavy redness. And you're like, you idiot. It's white wine with red food dye. It's completely false. But it's uh, these perceptual biases and and behaviors show up in in every aspect of life. And investing is going to be no different. And so thinking about how you build an investment process that is at least robust to some of this, I think, is very important. So the way we do it, or one of the ways we do it, is by putting valuation at the very heart of everything we do. Because we know that we two are human beings. So we're going to pick up the the newspapers and sit there and see these uh, stories about either how good everything is or how bad everything is, depending on where we are. And you're going to start to to kind of build that in. Having the advantage of a valuation-based framework is effectively turning a behavioral bias, which is anchoring, hanging on to to kind of sometimes irrelevant information as a basis of decision-making, and actually turning to your advantage. So there was a good example of anchoring was uh, some German judges. And they were asked to, uh, to sentence people to jail. But before they did so, they had to roll some die. Uh, and the die were rolled, and they were rigged. So they either gave the answer of three or nine, depending on which set of dice were being used. And what was interesting was the, the judge's sentences were directly proportional to whether they happened to roll a three or whether they happened to roll a nine, irrespective of the, the situation of the crime. So the judges were, without knowing it, actually anchoring to this irrelevant piece of information. So rather than anchoring to new stories or value-at-risk models, think about anchoring to valuation. Because then, so, you know, let's say the world falls apart like it did in, in 2008, 2009, early 2009, you're sitting there, you're looking at valuations, you're going, wow, this is a tremendous opportunity. I can buy assets that are 10, 11, 12 real. Conversely, in 2007, you're sitting there going, I don't want to own assets because these things are hideously expensive. Why would I want to uh, go and buy some? So it doesn't make any sense to go and buy in that kind of environment. I'm going to keep my powder dry and go and invest when the opportunity set is better. So that, that, that valuation framework helps you have an anchor that is actually sensible rather than clinging on to something that is essentially random noise, like, like the newspaper headlines. So I think you can, you can do that in lots of different ways. You can do it with stock valuation as well. So rather than building a, a dividend discount model or discounted cash flow model where we know, uh, I used to work, as you know, with, with analysts for, for a very long time, and I knew the way they built their models. They'd look at the share price and they go, oh, well, I want to be a buyer. I need to have uh, a share price target that's 10% higher. Therefore, I'm just going to notch my growth up until I get my, my uh, DCF to be 10% higher than current price. So you know that they're not using a DCF in a sensible fashion. Rather than falling into that trap, reverse engineer the problem. So say, okay, what do I need to believe to justify today's valuation in terms of growth? And then have a conversation around whether that growth is actually deliverable or not. And one of the things I do is is I plot a histogram, if you like, of of all the companies in, in history that I can get my hands on and show where their growth rates are. And then I can say, okay, well, Let's say I, I pick a stock and, and it's in the 99th percentile. You know, why do I think this stock is going to be in that 99th percentile? Whereas if it's down in the 
fifth percentile, I'm like, well, pretty much everybody hates this stock. It's, it's really beat up. What could go wrong? Let's have a conversation about the risks. But in general, I should be pretty much predisposed to that because expectations are very low. So it's a good way of, of kind of flipping the problem of, of anchoring to the share price on its head. So these are all kind of good elements of, of process that make, can try and make you behaviorally robust. We talked about triangulation, looking for uh, different signals and seeing if they all agree. You know, that, that makes you more confident. That's good, right? If they're all different, well, you, you've got to be a little more circumspect about your outlook. So I, I think process is vitally important because it's the one thing an investor can control and really help them admit that their own worst enemy is likely to be themselves. You know, it's funny. I just had a conversation with a fairly well-known investor the other day, and he called me, and we were walking through our funds. He goes, okay, Meb, tell me, what's your best fund? What, which, which fund? He goes, which fund has the best performance? And as soon as he said that, I just I, knew, I closed my eyes. I was on the phone, <laughs> so he couldn't see me do this. You know, face palm. And because I just knew where this is going. And I said, okay, just, you know, but I, I try to be a good sport. I said, okay, just out of curiosity, like performance over what time frame? You talk about one month, one year, three years, five years. And he goes, oh, you know, like I'm a sophisticated investor. He's like, tell me your best risk adjusted performance. I was like, do you want it absolute? Do you want it relative to the benchmark? And he goes, okay, both. Give me absolute best. And then I go, just out of curiosity, like I assume you're asking this because you're looking for the one that has the worst trailing three and five year performance. You can invest in that one, right? And he said, no, why would I do that? I said, <laughs> okay, well, we, this whole framework is backwards because you're going to end up doing what every institution does, which is chasing performance. It's so seductive and easy. And it's one of the reasons I became a rules-based quant is I identified I have all of the behavioral biases and in some in spades, I'm overconfident. I'll take as much risk as you could possibly give me. But listeners will will post a link to one of James's old tests that have some some pretty famous behavioral questions. And you can see just how many you will have and, and get wrong. It's a lot of fun. And then once you do that, you say, Man, I you then see you then see it everywhere <laughs> amongst your friends and family and everything else. All right, well, so we can't hold you forever. I got a couple other quick questions I want to touch on before we gotta let you go. Uh, James has been a lot of fun. You think we're in a bubble? You know, you talk a lot about this. Your shop is is a very famous, curious mind, student of history shop that looks at bubbles across currencies, equities, bonds, everything in between. As you look around the world today, you see any U.S. stocks, anything else? I think so. I think that it's really interesting. There's a lot of debate at GMO on this subject. So Jeremy Grantham is, is, is on record as saying he doesn't think it's a bubble. And primarily, he doesn't think it's a bubble because we are lacking euphoria. You know, you're not getting in the back of cabs and hearing people saying, oh, well, yeah, what's a stock tip? I guess the, the, the most pure form of that kind of mania is, is probably the cryptocurrencies, where uh, towards the end of last year, we were genuinely hearing that kind of thing. People were like, oh, yeah, we had one person call up and, and uh, he was a, a rock bassist for, for a well-known rock group. And uh, he was genuinely thinking about putting all of his savings into um, Bitcoin. And we were like, really? Um, that's, that's brave. Um, here's why we wouldn't do it. We think it's a mania and, and laying that out. I think this is a different sort of bubble. This isn't a classic mania bubble in, in the, the euphoria sense that Jeremy refers to, like 99 was. That was a bubble of belief. People genuinely thought the world was going to be different. And in fairness, technology did change the world. It's just not necessarily in a hugely profitable fashion for a lot of people. So I think that that was a very different bubble of belief. This is this environment we're in today. It's why I've referred to this as a cynical bubble. is is very different. 
it isn't a bubble of belief. People don't believe what they're doing, but they're doing it anyway. And and so I think this is a bubble, but it, it's a, a different one from the the classic manias, the bubbles of belief that we've seen. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, it, it's we look at the huge potential spread between expectations and probable probably reality. And I'm fine with the buy and hold crowd. I, I often tell, I say, look, we run a one of the world's cheapest buy and hold funds. I say it's totally fine, but you have to understand what you're getting. You know, for the example at least understand the stocks have declined 80% before. And the, the challenge I always have, you know, as Jack Bogle, you know, I think he's, you know, a national hero for all that he's done. But he come, you know, he says, look, in a recent paper, he said, I expect US stocks to do, I think it was 2%, maybe it was 3% a year. So pretty darn low. But he also said, you remain invested. And I've always wanted to ask Jack and Warren and the others that say, you just got to remain invested, say, you know, there's got to be a point at which you just say enough is enough. I don't know if it's a PE of 50 or 100 or 200 or 500, but but at some point it just makes makes no sense to me. Let's talk about a couple real, real other quick things and then and then we're going to let you go. Um, this is a total sideways segue. So uh, just just total reset, but but this is something that I think is another market myth that so many people get wrong on such a consistent basis that I think is probably useful just to spend a, a couple minutes on. Uh, and it's less about investing and more about macro. So you're you're a kind of reformed economist. But you, you did a paper a couple years ago talking about market macro myths, debt, 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 deficits, and delusions. And there was two in particular I wanted you to touch on if, if you're okay with it. Um, one is you talk about debt with governments or like households. And the second being, debt is a huge burden on future generations. Maybe if you could just kind of explain your views on those real quickly, because I, I think it's pr- particularly helpful for people as an example of their echo chamber and at least seeing something where, you know, the the what they've heard on on TV may not may not be reality. Right. It's uh, the very reason that the genesis of that paper was was exactly that kind of. I was getting really annoyed by people spouting and, and repeating the, these kinds of things without really thinking about them. And the first was, yeah, that the households and governments are very different. So if a household takes on debt, it has to repay it. It has no choice, right? And it's a real asset transfer. If a government issues a bond, it will repay it, but it has a very different way of repaying it. It owns the printing press. It will always be able to print money to repay its debt. And that's a very different dynamic. So a government's debt is, is very different from a household's debt. And yet, a lot of the analogies you hear, you know, like we're living beyond our means, those kinds of things, that the fiscal position is unsustainable. They're, they're really ways of, of kind of taking the household view of the world and imposing it on governments. And they're, they're very different things. A government actually doesn't have to issue debt at all. It is perfectly possible that a government could just finance all of its spending through printing money. And the very term printing money, it kind of sends shivers down people's spines and they start thinking about uh, you know, the Weimar Republic or, or Zimbabwe or, or some of these kinds of examples. But it, it's not that the they printing money is per se a way of generating hyperinflation. It isn't. Hyperinflations are actually generally associated with huge supply shocks. In, in the case of the Weimar Republic, it was the fact they had to uh, pay repatriations to the Allied forces and had to do so in hard currency. So they had a huge supply shock and also, of course, had lost most of their capital output through uh, the loss of the war. And in Zimbabwe, it was the output shock was really about 
a huge amount of, of, of transfer of not being able to produce their own food, which they used to be able to do and then didn't because they uh, decided that they weren't going to bother running the farms. There was a huge output shock. They had to go and buy food on the international markets, and that was printed. That was denominated in dollars. So suddenly they they had this huge debt uh, burden that they they weren't expecting in a in a currency that wasn't their own. So I, I think people kind of hear the words printing money and panic. Um, but if you think about it, a government can print money and, and just not issue bonds and say, you know what, we don't need a bond market. Norway, for instance, has a bond market essentially for fun. Uh, it doesn't need one. It has a huge sovereign oil fund. It doesn't need to to go out and actually issue bonds, but it, it does so because it thinks there is some convenience to having a government bond market. But it is perfectly possible for a government to always repay its debts, assuming those debts are issued in their own currency. Where you get into a different situation is if you are issuing debts in a currency that isn't your own, which is one of the issues for the Eurozone. So that, that is one of the, the big differences between households and governments. And I, I think people use these household analogies as an example of, of uh, a way of, of kind of forcing a set of political beliefs on people that actually are at odds with the economic reality. The other one that you mentioned was kind of this future debt as, as a, oh, sorry, debt as a burden on future generations. Well, if you think about it, who do you owe this debt to? So, you know, if, if you're talking about U.S. debt, let's assume just for a minute we're, we'll make this simple, that all U.S. debt is owned by U.S. citizens. So that debt, when it gets paid, is paid to U.S. citizens. It's a debt we owe ourselves not anybody else, and it isn't an intergenerational transfer because the assets are still going to be there. Right? They can run the money, and there isn't any intergenerational aspect from it. It's just a myth that there is this tremendous burden on future generations because they also will own both the asset and the liability. And as we know from any asset and liability, they have to net to zero. Now, it is perfectly possible that there are big distributional consequences to that. It might be that, you know, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett's grandchildren end up owning all of the assets and everybody else has the, the, the liability, which is unfair in, in lots of ways and is not necessarily a good outcome. But it isn't about intergenerational transfer. It, it's a, a cross-sectional transfer. It's a within-society transfer, not one where yeah, the baby boomers are suddenly going to impose this huge burden on, on the millennials. It's one of those classic bits of nonsense that gets spoken. People kind of believe because it seems compelling and, and obvious but it, it when you actually think about it, it it's just total nonsense yeah i think you framed it and this is a, a great way to think about it this may have not been you but i'm going to credit you with it anyway is, <laughs> is it said you know if we just behaviorally change the phrase from national debt to national savings um it would probably change people's perspective i remember watching mr robot once in the first season and you know the the premise was he's like all right we're gonna do this bug and it's going to get wipe out all government debt and say you moron you're also wiping out your grandmother's savings your father's pension plan that invests right. in this debt you know you're you're wiping out your your brother's uh, Illinois retirement plan and all these examples of people forget that that it's actual savings as well and it's um asset and liability match okay t- two more quick questions we're going to have to let you go this is one we ask everyone. We say, as you think back, wind back to your early days, recent, late, whenever it could be, what's been your most memorable personal investment? It could be great. It can be terrible. It could be a trade. It can be anything. But what's the one that, that kind of pops into head as being the one most memorable in your career? So the most memorable one in my career is a, is a mistake. 
and uh, it was it was in probably about 1995, 96, somewhere around about there. It was busy looking at uh, Japanese bonds, and they were yielding something like three percent at the time. And uh, I wrote an analysis saying that there is no way on earth Japanese yields could ever go lower. Um, and I watched them half, half, and half yet again. And really, that triggered a, a lot of thought uh, after they halved like four times into why on earth I just managed to get it so horrifically wrong. And that led to me to, to that piece that I wrote on, on debts, deficits, and delusions, because I, I was kind of, I was at that time using a very kind of standard way of thinking and hadn't really kind of questioned anything. And so when I went back and questioned, I was like, Jesus, yeah, I just completely cocked that up. It was a terrible, terrible idea, but it, it was a, a very humbling experience. And, and markets have a, an amazing gift for reminding us of the need to be humble on a regular basis. That's that's the famous widowmaker. At least you didn't go it short is, these uh, bonds. Yeah, right. It, it really, yes, it could have been for me as well. <laughs> but that's such a good example, too, of markets doing things that you know you don't expect. I mean, seeing, for at least me personally, seeing negative yielding sovereign bonds has, has been a, a interesting eye-opener that I'd wouldn't have even thought possible, um, you know, probably 10 years ago. James, I hear you got your Deadpool fanboy outfit on today to go see that. You already seen the movie? You getting ready I to? Indeed. I went to see it last week. You know, uh, so are you a, you're a Marvel or DC guy? I'm a Marvel guy. Uh, DC, I, I think DC used to make really good stories, but they make terrible bloody films. Um, and Marvel, I, I think, have, have just managed to to nail the combination of that transition from good stories to, to great cinema. You know, I, I grew up as a comic collector. The, the most decent thing my parents ever did to me, they said growing up, and, you know, we grew up in a typical mid, middle-class family. They say, Meb, the only thing that you're allowed to spend whatever you want on is books. And so I took books to mean comic books and proceeded to then sign up for about 20 different comic book subscriptions. And about a week <laughs> later, every day in the mail, a comic book showed up, and they just kind of smiled and said, look, you know, you got us on this one. So I, uh, my mom, to this day, bless her heart, she's the number one podcast listener. Hey, mom. She is storing about, I don't know, let's call it 4,000 comic books in her basement. But the best lesson on this altogether was that you know, I said, maybe they'll be worth something someday. Who knows? Or kids will want them. And then she dug out some like Lone Ranger, not even Lone Ranger, some like Western comic book she had growing up. And the four of those are probably worth more than all 4,000 of mine put together and not even close. So um, goes to show she's, she's the best investor in our family. James, it's been a blast. Where can people find your writings, follow you? What's the best place? all on the GMO website, uh, which is www.gmo.com. You can register for free, and uh, pretty much everything is on there. Awesome. James, thanks so much for taking the time today, and enjoy the Deadpool movie. It has been a real pleasure, Meb. You keep well, my friend. Listeners, it's been a blast. We'll post all the show notes at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. We now are preferred app is Breaker. Check it out. And if you like the show, hate it, leave a review. Let Jeff and I know. Feedback at the Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.